I uh, stumbled across Dr. Christakis in an interview, and I thought, I got to get him on the show. I am so pleased, doctor, that you had some time to join us. Thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Kelly. You have written this book. Now, I truth be told, and I don't lie on this show, I have not had the opportunity to read your book because I just recently found out about it. But I watched you talk about your book um, uh, to an American broadcaster, and I was fascinated because I think one of the questions on our mind is, you know, how long is this pandemic going to last? And what you've done is, like, you have uh, quite a knowledgeable background on pandemics, past plagues. Um, you have insight into how you think this COVID-19 pandemic is going to change the course of humanity. And there are three phases of the pandemic. Can you maybe elaborate on this stuff? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, we are not the first generation of humans alive to face this ancient threat. Uh, plagues, you know, are in the Bible. They're in Homer. They're in Shakespeare. Plagues are not new to our species. They're just new to us. You know, we think it's crazy that we have to live this way and that we're being affected this way. But but that's not true. Uh, it's just that we're unfamiliar with it. And they these types of plagues, especially respiratory pandemics, for which we have good records going back 300 years, and especially for the last 100 years, follow a pretty typical playbook. The first phase, which we're approaching the end of now, is when the virus sweeps through the human population and takes a couple of years and this is something I wrote about at the beginning, and not just me, but other experts who know about these things. Uh, and soon, in 2022, we will finally put the first phase behind us, uh, which is, you know, the biological and epidemiological impact of the pandemic. Uh, but then, like a tsunami that has washed ashore, you know, the waters finally recede, and that's great. Uh, now we've got to clean up the mess. It's going to take a couple of years for us to respond to the clinical, social, psychological, and economic aftershocks of the plague until around 2024. And then we will enter the, the post-pandemic phase, which I think is going to be a little bit of a party, like the roaring 20s of the 20th century, like the roaring 20s of the 19th century, after the last major plague we had uh, 100 years ago, you know, the 1918 so-called Spanish influenza. So those are the typical three phases uh, that one faces with a serious respiratory pandemic. I think that a lot of us thought that, you know, we've heard this will be like the roaring 20s all over again. I think a lot of us thought that we'd be in that phase right now. Was that delusional? No. <laughs> yes, yes. No, I mean, these things are, yes, it was a little delusional. I mean, who, the thing is, who can blame us for wishing that this hadn't happened to us or wishing that it would go away faster? One of the metaphors I like to use is, uh, you know, I grew up in Greece as a small boy and didn't have fluoride. And as an adult, I had lots of root canals. And your listeners that have had root canals will immediately know what I'm talking about. They're awful. But being in the chair and getting root canal work done and wishing it would end has no impact on your need for root canal. You just, you just have to endure them. And that's a little bit what's happening to us with plays. You know, we wish it would end. Mm -hmm. But... It, 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 it's not. It, this has a life of its own. And I heard in the lead up to me, I heard one of the sort of in the interval, I listened to someone was quoted in this voice there or whatever, saying that she had done everything the government asked of her. And, you know, she had to homeschool her kids and so forth and get vaccinated. I have empathy for that, that woman, but it's not anyone's fault. It's not the government's fault. There's nobody to blame here. We are you know, the virus has a life of its own. It's doing its thing. We happen to be alive at a moment 
when a new pathogen has been introduced into our midst as a species. And we have to rise to the occasion as, a, as individuals, as families, and as a polity. Mm-hmm. You know, we have to work together to confront this threat and finger pointing and, and fantasy that, oh, it'll, you know, it's nothing, you know, all these lies that, oh, it's not, it's not worse than the flu or you just treat it with, you know, hydroxychloroquine. These are fictions. We, we have to soberly rise to the occasion so on the on the on the on the Roaring Twenties thing, yes, I think that will come, but mm-hmm. not just yet. And, okay, and I let think me pop gonna, in. Can gonna, I pop in for a sec? Because I yeah. love that you brought that up. Because I was going to ask you about this. Because that host, that that person that you heard that you were talking about, yeah. that you heard in the promo while you were waiting to come on with me, is one of our uh, hosts here, and she was talking about fourth yes. boosters and how. You know what? I got to think on it because I did. I did my third booster. But this morning she said, I got to think on it. I don't know. Is that an illustration of just how entitled we are in the Western world and that we're so short sighted on just how helpful vaccines have been to date that, you know, because things aren't happening fast enough to our liking, we don't understand where this could have gone. So we don't even uh, entertain where it could have gone anymore. Can you can you speak to that? Because you mentioned in another interview that I that I watched over the holiday yes. season with you, that, you know, it's sort of this idea of not um, wanting vaccines. It's kind of a medieval view. Yes. I mean, I think uh, it's taken a couple of hundred years for human beings to be able to invent vaccines. Countless doctors and scientists and, and human subjects who signed up for trials have worked for decades, centuries, to develop vaccine technology. We are lucky, lucky that vaccines exist. And these COVID vaccines, by and large, are unbelievably good. They're incredibly effective and they're incredibly safe compared to prior vaccines. And for almost all people, they are a superior choice. It is vastly better to get vaccinated than to get the disease. So, so turning down the vaccines is, in my view, or, or thinking ill of them, is, is not a particularly wise way of, of, of seeing the, the, the current situation. Now, having said that, I, there, there are exceptions, and mm-hmm. it's also the case that uh, that uh, let me let me just back up for a second. So this booster issue, it is most people are familiar with the idea that you get a, a shot for the flu every year or for tetanus every ten years. That's likely what's going to happen with coronavirus. We're going to have to periodically get updated versions of the of the of the vaccine that account for new strains that have emerged of the virus. And that, but that's good news. That is a, a wonderful thing that we can confront this ancient threat using modern technology that actually is, saves our lives and is better for us. All right. And I, I'm happy that you, you know, had tempered that because I think that there are a lot of divisions going on right now. We're going to talk to the opposition leader, uh, the conservative leader. Uh, conservatives uh, are very different yep. here in Canada, by the way, as you know, because <laughs> uh-huh. we liberals, yes. conservatives, it's not the same as, as you know, your know. Republicans. But we are going to talk to him because he's actually saying that, you know, we t- we need to take a measured approach still with people that haven't yes. been vaccinated, whereas our liberal leader is at the point where he is now saying, you know, enough is enough. Just do the right thing. So I'm happy that you tempered it because I think it is important. Um, but we'll get to that a little bit later on. Um, you also mentioned that plagues. Yes, absolutely. Can I say something about that. Well, yes. no, but I mean, see, here's the thing. This is a complicated thing. On the one hand, I love living in a plural democracy. I wouldn't want to live in a society where everyone had the same beliefs, probably because they were imposed by the government or some powerful figure. 
So we have to tolerate variation in beliefs and ideology. On the other hand, we are a polity. We, we are facing a shared threat. Mm-hmm. And I think that although I would not send soldiers to people's houses to force them to be vaccinated, I do think it is reasonable to expect everyone to share the burden in dealing with a shared threat. This is a contagious disease. It spreads from person to person. It's like an invading army. We wouldn't readily tolerate people saying, you know what? Let others fight the war when the invader is at our shores. I don't want to do anything. That's not the Canadian uh, point of view, generally speaking. So, so, I, so, so it's subtle. It's difficult. I think we need to have a nuanced conversation about rights and responsibilities and risks and benefits. But at the same time, I don't think it's like, uh, uh, you know, uh, like a like a simple matter that, well, we'll just let everyone Mm. choose whatever they want to do. Fair is not always equal. That's what I say. You know, when people go, oh, well, everybody's got an equal point of view. And it's like, yeah, you can have your point of view, but fair is not always equal. Yes. Yes. I agree with that. So you also mentioned, and I want to get to this, that plagues prompt a search for meaning. We're seeing that right now. We're seeing that with a great resignation. There are a lot of people yes. that have decided, well, I'm out. Um, this, there's a, this is a two kind of parter because this has to deal with, uh, something that happens. You, you mentioned, you know, war, when a war, uh, rolls in and it dis, you destroy capital, but a virus leaves everything intact. So you, that actually leads to people saying, wait a minute. I'm here, there's fewer of us, but I need more money to do what I yes. want. And that's why we're seeing yes. some people, um, or to do what you want me to do. I'd like some more money and, and some fairness yes. here and to be treated with respect. That's part of the great resignation. So, um, there are a couple of, you know, factors at work here. Um, but, but the, the prompt, the, the search for meaning, can you speak to that? Yes, yes. Well, there are two different topics you put on the table. Let's start with the search for meaning issue. It is, you know, when, when it's a time of crisis, when death is in the streets, whether from famine or war or pestilence, uh, people typically hunker down. They tend to stay at home and uh, they reflect. They reflect on the meaning of their lives. They reflect on, on the kind of society they're living in and on the state of the world. And this is typical during times of plague. Now, in, in bygone days, this was often manifested by a turn to religion. And during the time of a plague, you saw a spike in religiosity. We're seeing that in this in in the North America as well, by the way. This is very a typical response. But there are other ways in which this type of reflection that is being prompted and allowed by a play um, is being manifested. One is people are, uh, for example, there's been a lot of protest movements in the United States. You know, the Black Lives Matter, for example, and even the January 6th uh, insurrection at the nation's capital, I think, reflected left-wing and right-wing kind of searches for meaning. And we can talk more about that if you want. But there are other manifestations. In addition to that, this great resignation that you described, many people are, are asking themselves, like, what is the meaning of my work? Uh, do I, should I, for example, switch occupations? We're seeing a boom in applications to medical schools and nursing schools, even in the face of a deadly pandemic, because people see these as meaningful occupations. So I think we're in for a period of political ferment. We're in for a period of people really thinking deeply about what's important in their lives. I, I think that the, the kind of um, heightened anxiety that the, we see culture-wide because of the uh, plague is also contributing to this. You know, people are kind of on, on tenterhooks, you know, wondering, thinking, you know, what's happening? What should, do, what should I do? What's important? So, so yes, I think plagues prompt a search for meaning. 
the, the second thing you mentioned had to do with this interesting distinction between uh, warfare and plagues. When, when a nation is fading and in, facing an invading army, uh, the army uh, destroys lives and destroys capital. Uh, you know, the, the, the roads, the, the houses, the factories. Sure. Yeah, the infrastructure is destroyed, you know, when, during a war. Uh, and and it's an, an enormous destruction of capital. In fact, there's no greater waste of money than to build munitions and detonate them, right? I mean, it's like you take a lot of wealth, mm-hmm. you build a bomb, and then you explode it, and then the wealth is gone. Uh, so, so uh, and you kill people in a war. But in a plague, it's like a neutron bomb. You, you kill a people, but you leave the capital intact. And if you look at the history of serious plagues going back thousands of years, what you typically find after a plague. Now, coronavirus is a little different because it, it tends to spare working age people and it's not as deadly. Let's be very clear. The plague we are facing is a plague light. It's nothing like the bubonic plague or smallpox or cholera epidemics our ancestors had to face. In fact, we're, we're quite lucky in this regard. Not only do we have vaccines, but mm-hmm. the actual pathogen is not so bad. But anyway, nevertheless, it's killing a lot of people. But, but what happens during the plague is, is you kill people, but you leave the gold, the roads, the, the money, the, the factories intact. And so the capital to labor ratio changes. Labor is dear. Capital is plentiful. And therefore, you have a increasing demand for wages. Uh, people expect more. They expect to be paid more. Rightly so, in my view. Sure. And this is, cup- and this is coupled with the political ferment we discussed earlier. So I think we're in for quite a rocky road in the coming years in our society. I think there are going to be many changes. I think it's going to be a little like the 60s, actually, in North America uh, in the coming decade. Well, I'm going to have to put a pin in it at that because we've got a, a break. But uh, Dr. Christakis, okay. it's been fascinating talking to you. I'd love to have you back. Thank you so much, Kelly, for having me. And I'm happy to come back. Perfect. We'll talk to you again soon. Dr. Christakis is a professor at Yale. His book is called Apollo's Arrow, The Profound and Enduring Impact of Coronavirus on the Way We Live.